As we were walking out at 8 o'clock to begin the liturgy, Stu Svensson said to me in the sacristy, Boy, that reading from 1 Corinthians is incomprehensible. And I thought, well, you're not going to hear me preach on it today. That's for darn sure. <laughs> uh, and then I decided uh, maybe I ought to say at least a word about what it might mean, you know, Act as if you're not married, act as if you're not mourning, act as if you're not buying and selling and so on. So what in the world would it mean? Uh, In biblical scholarship, they would refer to this passage as one of the examples of Paul's eschatology. I didn't say scatology, I said eschatology. And um, that means about what's going to happen at the end of the world or when we have some cataclysmic event or God comes or what, how do we make sense out of that? So you, you need to know this without getting into the details of the reading. This comes at the end of a long uh, piece in 1 Corinthians about Christian marriage. And then he speaks about this. But for our purposes we have to understand something about Paul that is important. He thought that uh, Christ, Jesus, was going to come again soon. And uh, his ministry was organized in such a way as to believe that um, the signs of the times would demonstrate that this was so. But remember also that when uh, the uh, biblical writers spoke about that, they meant something that was going to happen concretely in history. And Paul turned out to be right because about 10 or 15 years later, the Roman army came into Jerusalem, burnt down the temple, and all of the, most of the Jews and all of the Christians fled the city. And they were then now living outside of Jerusalem for a period of time. It was a complete and utter upheaval and required, therefore, of both Jews and Jewish Christians to reassess what it is they believe to be true about God and Jesus in the world. So when you read in the Bible generally about these kinds of events, remember uh, we have emphasized far too long, or a great many Christians, of there being some cosmic occurrence where God comes again and uh, conducts a divine ethnic cleansing, and then everybody who's left goes somewhere, and those who aren't don't, right? So there's more than one way to think about this. And Paul is saying, and this is good advice, you need to cultivate the right kind of detachment from the important things in your life in order to have a healthy relationship with them. We don't advocate as Christian people enmeshment with our relationships, with our personal stuff, with the way in which we understand the world. We have to have the right kind of self-regard and we need to understand something about the necessity to cultivate that sense of distance and the non-anxious presence in all relationship. And to some degree, that reading is about that. What I want to preach about this morning is repentance. Oh, no! But repentance comes up from time to time in the Christian year. We usually... Read about it in the Green Sundays following Epiphany. We certainly will read about it in uh, 
Lent, we read about it in Advent, and in sometime in the long green season, we'll have a biblical passage or passages about the centrality and importance of repentance. So it's necessary for us to understand what we mean when we use the term, because most of the time, I think in Christianity, certainly for the last maybe three or four hundred years, we focused on uh, it being the process whereby we convict ourselves of our all, all our shortcomings, have an enormous sense of guilt, and desire somehow to have all of that taken away from us. It's not a bad thing, but it may not be the complete story. Marcus, in the New Testament, there are two words that are used for uh, repentance. There are Greek words that try to approximate, to some degree, the Hebrew Bible, where Jesus would have used, when he used the word repent in the gospel for today, would shub, would mean to turn around, to reorient yourself in, a, in its way. So in the, in the Greek in the Christian scriptures, uh, two words. The most common is metanoin, and the other one is epistrophe. They're both the same. They mean to change direction. They mean to turn around, to reassess. The difference between the words is that metanoia has to do with the internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states of the person and how they, in their process of self-reflection, begin to see the necessity of a reorientation and a movement in a direction that is more to God. Shub means to turn to God. So metanoia means to turn around. Epistrophe means the same thing except... The sense of the word is that in addition to the internal processes of reflection in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, we make a decision to put it in our hands. In other words, to make manifest that resolve. To put it into behavior. Not just thinking thoughts about, you know, I'm not going to eat any more C's candy, so I'll do something else. Right, or I resolve to do that. Marcus Borg, in an excellent book he wrote a few years ago called The Heart of Christianity, speaks about um, the, the, the process of repentance is not something that is primarily contrition, where we get uh, guilted into saying we need to change and we're so on. But we should understand it as resolve. Borg says... Repentance in the New Testament has an additional nuance of meaning. The Greek roots of the word combine to mean go beyond the mind that you have been given and acquired. Go beyond the mind shaped by culture to the mind that you have in Christ. So it is the beginning of a process, repentance of what I'm going to talk about in a minute, which is conversion, you know, to now change your life in some way. And how do we understand that as Christian people? What do we mean when we use the word? Now I've said that Borg has uh, put a caveat in our understanding of repentance to say we should not focus uh, endlessly on our shortcomings or on the way in which we have done bad things but more on our resolve now to live a life more congruent with God's purposes. 
But he also says that one of the difficulties with the culture that you and I find ourselves in is that there's not enough remorse. We should feel remorse for the things that we do that aren't right. I don't know about you, but the culture I'm looking at, remorse, you know, not much remorse around. There's a great book that was written in 1991. I haven't talked about it in a while. Uh, written by a man named Richard Tarnas. It's called The Passion of the Western Mind. And in, it's really a survey of the history of ideas in Western civilization. It's an outstanding book. It's used as a college textbook in some places. And uh, he says many interesting things. But he quotes in this book a quotation from the Mexican poet and writer Octavio Paz who says this about remorse. The examination of conscience and the remorse that accompanies it, which is a legacy of Christianity, has been and is the single most powerful remedy against the ills of our civilization. You know what's fashionable today, I don't need to tell you this, is to develop a long checklist of the ills of Western society, how for centuries it went off the rails, all of the bad things that it's done in terms of human history. And it is Western civilization and the ideas that have been generated from that civilization that have enabled an appropriate sense of remorse. And also, when we're chugging on all eights at our best, capable of making the changes that are necessary to make this a society where it is easier for people to be good and where we do the best for the most. So we need to realize that uh, self-criticism, in some sense, has its limits. And sometimes we need to recognize that there are actually some seeds within this uh, history of ideas that are life-giving for the world, and to thank God for them. And Richard Tarnas does a good job of that in his book. All of the writers who speak about conversion... Uh, lesser-known Christian writers on the spiritual life, the two big giants who speak about their own conversion or have it written about, about them, are Paul and Augustine, St. Augustine, who wrote the famous book, you know, The Confessions of St. Augustine. And he talks there about his conversion and the processes that were involved internally in his emotional, spiritual, and mental life. So here's what he says, and when we describe in uh, the, the New Testament Paul's conversion, it's very, very similar. Four things occur. The first one is a disorientation. Somehow you're knocked off your pins. Something's happened. Uh, you, for some reason, are feeling uh, out of balance. And in the process of this, uh, you begin to do a reflection about your own personal history. You begin to think about uh, the elements of your past and how the, you, self-examination. 
And in the process of that, you begin to feel uh, a sense of forgiveness and the mercy of God. And by virtue of that sense, you then feel the presence or the intervention and the call from some enabling other, with a capital O. So, God, the higher power, what it is you wish to speak of, that in some way there's something bigger outside yourself than you, and that you're participating in this presence. You are an instrument of this presence, and by virtue of that understanding and beginning knowledge, you have changed direction in your life and you begin to see things in a new way. In the readings for today, the most uh, important one in my view, because it brings, introduces another theme into the importance of personal repent repentance and transformation, uh, the importance of remorse, all of the things in the processes of repentance. But in the reading from Jonah, we also introduce the elements, since this is a relational topic, what do we do when we see repentance in other people? And how do we understand that as we live our life? Here's the story. We don't read the whole one, uh, the whole story today. Remember the book of Jonah is a minor prophet. It doesn't mean that what he says is of minor significance. It means he wrote a little book. Right? So a major prophet wrote a big book. So Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're major prophets. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament. And then you've got Obadiah and Hosea and Amos and so on, the minor prophets. And Jonah is one of them. Even though it's not really a, a, it's not really a collection of prophecy, it's a narrative about the prophetic vocation and how we understand God's approximate call to us. So here's the story. Jonah is called by God and God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. And I want you to prophesy in Nineveh because that their behavior is beyond the pale. And I want you to tell them that unless they change there's going to be big trouble and plenty of it. So Jonah doesn't want to go. The subtext to this, by the way, is the book of Jonah, all of the Hebrew Bible, are Jewish texts, right? They're about the people of the covenant. So Jonah is a person of the covenant. And he's being asked by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a Gentile city. It's full of Gentiles. People outside the covenant. So he's being sent to Nineveh. So he does everything he can to get out of this. To escape it. And then we have the story we didn't read today. The famous one where he gets swallowed by a big fish. And he's in the belly of the fish for three days. And the fish then coughs him up on the beach. So he figures, I guess I better go to Nineveh. <laughs> so he goes to Nineveh and he prophesies what God told him to. 
And you know what? The people in Nineveh said, okay, we're sorry. I see, we will change. And they manifest the outward signs of changing. Jonah is furious. The fact that these people repented and avoided God's wrath, as we used to say, why, it's beyond the pale. He goes into a huge sulk. And then we have the story goes out and there's a shade trees under and God sends the sun and the wind and he put him these faint from thirst and it's a big mess and finally God says to him in so many words do you second are you second guessing me you would do well to criticize me have i not let these people off the hook because they repented a city of 50,000 people and also many cattle That's the concluding sentence of the book. I think that losing those cattle would have been problematic, don't you? So maybe that's why they were mentioned. Now here's the thing. This is a big corporate example of what do you do when repentance really happens? And how do we in our relationships interact with people who do repent? The first thing I want to say about this is we need to be very careful. Because people tell you a lot of things. And people that you're close to can say, I used to be like that, but I'm not going to do that anymore. So when you listen to that kind of talk, you need to uh, protect yourself. And you begin to believe that when you see change. All of us are full of uh, swearing solemn oaths about what it is we're not going to do anymore, and then you know. But this really is about how do we receive uh, the grace, see the presence of the grace of God in other people, and their own repentance and turning about, their own reorientation, and the lesson that it may give to us. You know, if somebody in the family is doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, and they stop doing it, everybody gets nervous. Because they've got to change too. And we had it all in balance, didn't we? And all of a sudden it's out of balance. So what do I have to do? And of course what's at the root of that is fear. Change. A reorientation. So in some way, we need to uh, be willing to see the legitimate repentance in other people and how that might have a transformative effect on us as well. When people change the direction of their lives, that's what this is about. Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral in his book, Reimagining Christianity, said, uh, conversion and repentance means having the heart open to and sometimes broken by new possibilities. 
And so when we see the power of God's work in, at work in the lives of people, uh, we need to give thanks. Part of this has to do with the fact, too, that if we wish to live lives of character, we have to begin to understand that uh, when we do a reorientation, it involves developing the internal self-regulation and uh, self-discipline in order to meet the challenges and the opportunities, the stamina to stand up to the quotidian challenges that we face, the daily challenges. The older I get, the more I understand in everybody's vocation, it isn't our commitment and dedication to the great ideas. All of us have that. It's how do you stand the drip, 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 right? Which is also part of responding in a mature sense to your vocational call, you know? Coming through prayer and through participation in the church's worship, through living a life of self-examination and repentance, that you begin to say, you know, these quotidian things don't seem as much like Chinese water torture as they used to. So give thanks this week for the possibility of repentance. Give thanks for the presence of God's enabling love. Give thanks for God's unconditional acceptance and forgiveness. That's the stuff that will help us in this process. Amen.